Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Knox, the new one. (laughs) I want to add my word of welcome to what Sam said earlier on. We hope that whether you're here for the first time today or have been coming for a number of weeks, uh, that if you're new, that you'll feel at home among us and that you'll have a chance to, to meet some people maybe even today after the service over coffee. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a light in the darkness for us. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in our understanding of that word today? Point us to Jesus, we pray. Amen. It is a truth universally universally acknowledged that a young man who wants to acquire a plant should buy a cactus. Well, that's what I did anyway. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, just across the street, I wanted to add some life to my barren room in residence. And so I went out and I bought a number of cacti and succulents. I'd heard they were easy to manage. So I put them in a corner, I left them alone, and I watered them on special occasions like Thanksgiving and the NHL trade deadline. And to my amazement, they did not die. A couple of them even flowered. But the truth is you don't have to be a good gardener to keep a cactus alive, not at all. More recently, I've taken more of an interest in growing things. A couple of years ago, I got some advice from the two best gardeners in my life, my mother and my mother-in-law. We have these forsythia bushes in our backyard and every spring they come alive with yellow blossoms. It's beautiful. But the matriarchal word was that they were not thriving as they should be. Apparently, we should have been pruning them annually. Now to me, pruning is a strange and disturbing process. I mean, you want your plants to grow. If you're a gardener, you know what that's like. So it seems really wrong to cut back the growth that they have enjoyed. But I've learned over the years that if you want healthy plants, you have to prune them. You have to trim back shoots that aren't going in the right direction, cut branches that are tangled and turning in on themselves. You have to remove the parts that are dead. Basically, you prune a plant so it can stop wasting its energy, so it can focus and grow. A good gardener guides a plant so that it expands outwards. You're helping it move towards the light. Here in John 15, Jesus gives us a picture that is a promise of fruitfulness. He says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He's talking about the church and the union that the church enjoys with Christ, that mystic sweet communion as one of our hymns puts it. We learn here in this reading how Jesus wants us to be fruitful. First of all, in our suffering, might seem like an odd place to start, but that's how Jesus begins. Secondly, by remaining in him, and we'll see a couple of ways that we can do that. And thirdly, 
in our togetherness as a community of his friends. We meet Jesus this morning as he's about to leave. These are his final days, if not his final hours, with the disciples before he's going to be arrested. Jesus wants to encourage them, but he is not selling us a vision of the Christian life as nonstop flourishing. No, in the next chapter, he tells us that in this world, we who follow Jesus will have trouble. Not we may have trouble now and again, but we will have trouble. And here in John 15, he starts with the hard stuff. He starts with pain and with loss. He talks about pruning first. I think we'd rather rush ahead to the harvest. We're hoping for same-day delivery on that fruit basket. We don't want to hear that suffering is part of, even necessary, if we're going to be fruitful. And yet Jesus says his father is the gardener who prunes and shapes us. To be pruned is to be reduced, to be cut back. Nobody wants it. And we know that plants don't grow overnight, and so Jesus invites us to slow down and to seek the wisdom and the vantage point of the gardener. I think many of us look back on the trials we've gone through, perhaps over many years, and we realize now that a season of suffering in our past was how we came to put down deeper roots in our faith. Let's be really clear that Jesus, that God does not inflict suffering on us. God is good and there's nothing evil in him. But he takes the evil that is loose in this world and in our hearts and he walks with us in our pain so that we can grow closer to him. Our world is so deeply committed to denial and escapism and we're very much a part of that, that it would be foolish, if not offensive, to suggest that you might want to consider submitting to your suffering and even looking for joy in it. But that is the Christian approach to suffering. Christians worship a God who willingly went to an ultimate place of suffering for us. Jesus went to the cross so that we could live, and God prunes us so we can flourish with him. I don't want to make this sound easy. It's not. It's complicated. It's impossible to cover in a sermon. The Bible doesn't make it sound easy either. John 15 doesn't. If you've ever seen a plant after a gardener has pruned it, it looks like a war zone. All this debris on the ground. Leaves, branches, flowers, maybe fruit, all discarded. What remains looks withered. If you're not familiar with grapevines, what Jesus is talking about, here's a picture of a thriving grapevine with all of its fruit. All that gorgeous green and purple, and those grapes look like they're begging to be picked. And then, here's a picture of a vine after it's been pruned. It's devastated but only after it's gone through the pruning will new life be possible. And then here's another picture, a picture of the whole vineyard. When I saw this picture, 
It made me think of the church here in Canada, especially after the pandemic. And then I thought some more, and I thought of the vision Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 37 of the Valley of Dry Bones and all of those bones coming to life. How would you say you've been pruned in recent years? How have we individually and collectively as the church been shaped by loss so that we are now at the point of expecting a new season, a season in which God will breathe new life into us and make us fruitful? The second way that we bear fruit is by remaining in Jesus. I read somewhere that we are born independent. No, sorry, we are born dependent. We strive then to become independent. And if we ever reach maturity, it's because we've grown into interdependence. But I think as we move from the dependence of our childhood years into independence, we can sometimes get lost in that striving to be autonomous, to make a name for ourselves, to, to control our destiny, to see our plans worn out. Jesus warns us not to buy into the world's idea of freedom. He says, true freedom is to remain in me. He urges us to not go running after the things of this world. How are we to do that? How are we to remain with Jesus then? By his word, he says. In verse 3, we read, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But it doesn't mean clean like you've had a shower or taken a bath. It literally means refined by having superfluous things, things that are not central, that don't matter, taken away, stripped away. Growth is not automatic when you suffer. You have to remain in Jesus. He says no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, nothing there does not literally mean nothing, because clearly a lot of people who have no interest in Jesus do a lot of things. Nothing here means nothing worthwhile, nothing truly lasting. You can be busy and yet ultimately doing nothing. If you've ever spent a whole day on email, you may be familiar with that feeling. Jesus is really saying that apart from him, we can't do anything that is ultimately good, anything that will endure, like his love, which endures forever. We also remain in Jesus as we listen to him, like we would listen to a friend. When we ponder his words in scripture, and when we pay attention to the new thing he has for us, every day. One of the best ways that you can experience that here at Knox in our community is by joining a home church. And you can talk to really anyone you've seen up here today about that, but especially I'd encourage you to talk to Pastor Natasha. Or maybe you want to get into or back into the habit of daily Bible reading on your own. In that case, let me recommend an app called Lectio 365. How many of you have heard of Lectio 365? Raise your hand. That's a good number of you, maybe a quarter. 
I came across Lectio 365 in the first year of the pandemic, and it was a gift to me and to Judith. It takes 10 minutes of listening, maybe in the morning or any time of day, and the words of Jesus remain with you for that day as you're open to them. But okay, what about verse 7, you might be asking? Does it really mean that if you do this Bible reading stuff, this devotional thing, then you can ask for whatever you want in your life and you're going to get it? I think most of all, Jesus is saying here that he really cares about the desires of our hearts. He wants us to be honest, even, even to be bold in expressing those desires to him. And as we remain in him, we will grow in our knowledge of his will. We'll be less likely to insist on our own way, naming it and claiming it. We'll, we will also avoid the temptation, maybe the greater temptation of disbelief, of having such low expectations that we don't even ask at all. Jesus is challenging us here. He's saying, try me. He's saying, as you remain in me, things are going to get interesting. Watch me. Remaining in Jesus always leads to other people too. It leads into community. We remain in him as we love one another and keep his commands. How can we love like that? We have a hard time loving people, don't we? Well, simply, it says here, by not separating. If Jesus is the vine and we're the branches, then we are together. We are inseparably connected, he's saying. That is our new identity as followers of Jesus. But we resist it anyway because it's hard. Our self-centeredness, our sinful nature leads in the opposite direction. And so the devil whispers to us, avoid that difficult person in your life, that person you've had conflict with, and then things get worse. Maybe someone is getting on your nerves these days. Maybe it's someone in the youth group with you, or in your home church, or who's part of a leadership team you're on. Maybe it's someone in your family or a friend. Maybe it's a roommate, a neighbor, and you find yourself growing in distance from them, cutting them off in a way. If you have a legitimate grievance with such a person, Jesus says you should go directly to them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his amazing little book, Life Together, says that you should pray for anyone you find it hard to love. Now, you will find it hard to pray for them too, but if you do, he says that God will change your heart. Bonhoeffer also issues what I think is a remarkable warning about our attitudes towards church. He writes, the person who loves their dream of Christian community will destroy it. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And so what I think that means is that if your dream of church hinges on some narrow doctrinal issue that is simply non-negotiable for you, or if your dream of church is that your idea of social justice needs to always take precedence, or if your dream of church is that worship must look a certain way, 
Nancy and Noreen and I were talking before the service about, I said, are you ready to boogie? And, and they, they questioned that. They wanted me to define boogie precisely. <laughs> they did not seem entirely open to this prospect. So what is your idea of worship? Do you sit in the pew? Do you leave this place? And where do your thoughts go? Thankfulness or criticism? If your dream of church is your own dream, not a dream that's shared, then come back to Jesus as the true vine. Let him shape and reshape your dreams for our togetherness. Let him be the one who brings all the branches together because only he can. The command of Jesus is clear. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Stop seeing other people as an obstacle to your happiness. They are your life, these ones whom I have put you with. Remain with them. Do not leave them, says Jesus. That is true freedom. And so he is the vine and we are the branches. We want to be fruitful. We want to see good things come out of our work, out of our life. But often we think of fruit in terms of success, in terms of numbers, influence, power. If we're going to follow Jesus in loving what we need is fruit like we have listed for us in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. We need more patience, kindness, peace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, and joy. And it is hard to measure those things, but the goodness of them abounds. We remain in Christ when we imitate him in these ways and as we pour ourselves out for others. Last weekend, last Saturday, I was here at Knox to celebrate the birthday of an old friend and a former colleague in ministry. We worked together here at Knox, actually. And when I think of someone who has remained in Jesus by his word and in loving service to his people, I think of Rob Kennedy. There were about a hundred of us gathered together that afternoon, and we heard story after story from young people, some of whom weren't that young anymore, whom Rod whom Rob had freely and humbly spent time with over 40 years in youth ministry, some of them at Knox and some of them elsewhere, not expecting return on his investment. That's the kind of guy he is. And we heard how he always pointed them to God's word and scripture first. We saw fruit on display. It was everywhere that day. Fruit that lasts, fruit that makes the gardener's heart sing. That's what I think matters, and that's what we're called to. The third way that Jesus makes us fruitful is through friendship. Traditionally, the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples was pure top-down hierarchy. Rabbi Jesus would have been the master, and those disciples were his servants. So when Jesus chooses to call them friends in verse 15, he offers them an entirely new and radically countercultural identity. He did this before when he washed their feet in chapter 13. A proper rabbi, a rabbi who was going somewhere, would never have considered doing such a thing. Jesus 
now defines love and friendship as being willing to die for your friends. He's still their teacher, he's still their Lord, but now he's also their friend. He has come close to us too like that. He lays down his privilege and his power and he obeys his father even to the point of giving everything up. As John says elsewhere in the New Testament in his first letter, this is how we really know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. At the cross, we see true and ultimate love displayed for us. And incredibly, it paves the way for friendship with God, a friendship like we never imagined. And friendship with each other, renewed, restored, reconciled. If there's one thing, if there's one word I want you to take away this morning from John 15, it's a verb that's repeated 12 times in this passage. Remain. You probably picked up on that. Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. The King James Version translates it as abide in me. I love that word abide. It's an old word, but it's a strong word. It feels to me rooted and active. It's from the Greek word meno, which literally means to make your home in something or someone. In Christ, God came close and made his dwelling among us. Christians believe that through Jesus, we receive the homecoming we've always longed for. So don't just come to Christ, abide with him. Walk into his house and be completely at home there. Receive the peace that you were created to enjoy. We tend to assume we have to earn that. After all, it does talk a lot about obeying commands in this passage, right? But notice that it also does not say that first we have to obey God and then we get his love. No, Jesus is saying that as we receive his love, we will be changed. And we're going to want to obey him. Our hearts will be changed, our desires will be transformed, because nothing can separate us from his love. And look at that love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. On this Father's Day, as some of us may be sifting through complicated memories or complicated current realities with our own fathers, consider God the Father's love for his Son. It's a love beyond what we can comprehend. We sang about the depths and the mystery of that love earlier. God the Father loves his son with a brilliant, perfect, everlasting love. And that is exactly the same love with which Jesus has loved us. Jesus says, make your home in that. Abide there. To abide means to rest in his love. Abiding in him is not so much about things you have to do for him. Maybe some of us have that impression of religion, of spirituality. No, it's about resting in what he thinks of you. And this is so hard for many of us, but it's the very core of Christian faith. God's acceptance is given to us. His forgiveness is offered freely, not as a reward for what we've done, but as a gift. 
And when you receive that, when you abide in it and rest in it, his life starts to flow in you. And then you will change. Not because you're being told to change, but because you are in him. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. He wants us to know that we are united to him, that he will never let go of us. He says, he promises that we will flourish as we abide in him. And he says that he will make our joy complete. He will fill up every emptiness within us. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Amen. Let's take a moment to reflect on three questions. I thought of one after I created the slide. First of all, how has God used an experience of suffering to prune and shape you recently? Second, what step is the Holy Spirit prompting you, perhaps prompting you, to take as you seek to abide in Jesus? And the bonus question, where do you see fruit growing within Knox Church? And how are you leaning into that? How are you a part of that?